Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and they said to him, that is Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. In the second chapter of Mark, we see the servant who forgives in verses 1 through 12. We also see the servant who fulfills in verses 13 through 22. We're beginning to understand the power of the servant of the Lord Jesus to completely change a life. Jesus knows that there are men and women who are in need, not just of a a makeover or a comb over, but of a radical transformation to become someone radically different, substantially changed from the inside out. And in this passage, we're given a glimpse Into the changed life. The revelation of the changed life begins with a question. A question about fasting in verse 18. And we soon discover that Jesus wants to bring about joy in our life. Verse 19. A transformation. Verse 20. A new wardrobe. New wine. A brand new life. Verse 21. That brings an amazing adventure. Verse 22. Some of you who are old enough to remember Irma Bombeck, she was a popular writer in the 60s and the 70s. And she was popular because she would talk about adventures that often mirrored the things that happened in normal people's lives. And she once wrote about sitting in a church, much like this church. She was sitting in a church and there was a young child, a little girl, who turned around and she began to grin And she began to smile. She was clutching the back of the seat. She wasn't just making, she wasn't making any sounds. She, she just started smiling. (laughs) And when her mother noticed, she said in a stage whisper, stop that smiling. You're in a church. And she gave her a little pat and sat her back down and said, that's better. Irma Bombeck concluded that, that some people come to church looking like they had just read their rich aunt's will, and she left everything to her pet hamster. You feel ripped off, broken, empty, bleak, sorrowful. I understand that there are seasons of sorrow. And sometimes those seasons of sorrow turn into a semester of sorrow. But the Christian life was... 
Never meant to be completely somber, completely serious all the time. There has to come a moment when joy becomes a part of your life. There's a reason why the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is demonstrated in joy. But some people think that what it means to be a Christian is to be always filled with sorrow and sobriety. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, Clearly you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not just with pen and ink, but with the spirit of a loving God. It is carved out on tablets. It is not carved out on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. You really become a message. About about who God is and, and what Jesus is all about. And what does the unbelieving world read when it reads my life and it reads your life? GM Landis writes, is the letter clear and distinct or blotted and blurred? Do the unsaved have a clearer vision of Christ or is their opinion of him lessened by what little of him they see written in our lives and in our attitudes? Jesus will condemn man-made rules that keep people from knowing and loving God. Let me be very clear here. Rules are not bad in and of themselves. Traditions are not bad in and of themselves. The rule and the tradition becomes a problem when the rule or the tradition undermines the nature of God, the character of God, and the message of God. Jesus refuses to allow self-righteousness and legalism and holy pretense to get to him. Some people had let go of the commandments of God. They were embracing the traditions of men. Man-made rules and man-made religion masquerading as God's truth can be extremely dangerous. So in this section, Jesus will emphasize that God isn't destroying an old way, but he's fulfilling it through a new and a better way. The new wine will be the cup of his blood, a sacrifice that will bring joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we're going to look at a wedding and we're going to look at a wardrobe and wine. In order to see what Jesus has to say about the Christian having fun. But first, there's this question about fasting. Look again at verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You've got to understand something. In the first century, rabbis were responsible for their disciples. In other words, the disciples became a reflection of the rabbi. Sort of like today where children become a reflection of their parents. The text says, were fasting, but in in the original language it says, isan. Nestonantes. It's it's a word that really could be translated. They are fasting. It would seem that the disciples of John and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were fasting at that very moment. At that very moment, they have embarked on and embraced a fast, which prompts the question of fasting. 
Now, fasting is the practice of going without food or water for a period of time. The law of Moses commanded one fast and one fast only on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 34, and Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32, the purpose of the fast was to afflict the body or the flesh, to deprive the body or the flesh in order to nourish the soul. It was to be a time of profound reflection consideration and meditation on the circumstances of your soul. And so, by the time the first century rolled around, much of fasting had lost its meaning and had morphed into something that more resembled a religious ritual. Now, we know that the fast of John the Baptist was an outward sign of humility and regret. It was repentance over sin. In the days of Jesus, many of the religious Jews, the the Pharisees, they would fast twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. The fast would always begin at six o'clock in the morning and end at six o'clock in the evening. But that meant that before six o'clock in the morning and after six o'clock in the evening, you were free to eat and drink. But the religious leaders reasoned that if fasting once a year made God happy, why then fasting twice a, a week would make him ecstatic. And that becomes part of the point. In order To convince everyone that they were fasting and that they were afflicted. Many would put on white powder on their face. Um, Imagine, if you will, fasting makeup, okay? Maybe some of you have heard the commercial, Maybelline means beautiful eyes. You know, you have this certain look that you're going for. and, And the religious leaders would get this religious look, but it was more like a mime. They would take white powder. They would put it on their face. They had fasting ashes and they would put it on top of their head and they would comb the ash into their hair and they would wear their clothes as frumpy and unkept as possible so that when you saw them, you would go, Wow, you must really be a holy and religious person. How could you tell? (laughs) You look miserable. Matter of fact, I'm trying to remember when I've ever seen anyone look as unhappy as you do. Yes, I'm I'm mourning over sin. Now, it's possible that John's disciples have an entirely different reason for fasting. And I think it is possible that because Mark is not written in chronological order, we're not invited into the circumstances of John the Baptist. Is this right before John the Baptist is arrested? Is this during his arrest? Is it after his death? Is it possible that they are fasting and focusing on God for good and godly reasons, seeking his presence, trying to hear from God, interceding for the Baptist? That's a possibility. But whatever is happening, Jesus sees through the hypocrisy of fake religion, of, of, of external religiosity, and condemns it. And you've got to understand something. Jesus is not condemning fasting. What he is content, c- condemning is a pretense of outward holiness with the net result of misrepresenting God. 
We see that clearly in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter six, verse 16, where Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. That means take the ashes off. Wash your face, take off the clown makeup so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But your father who is in in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The New Testament teaches that there's an appropriate time to fast and there's an inappropriate time to fast. There's an appropriate time to celebrate and there's an inappropriate time to celebrate. For those who are weighed down with the burden of the law, with the rules, the regulation, the legalism, the ceremonialism, Jesus offers a relationship with God based on God's love and based on God's grace and based on God's mercy. It makes sense that it's a bad idea to fast on Thanksgiving Day. Your mother has been cooking. Your grandmother has been cooking. There's turkey. There's ham. There's dressing. There's mashed potatoes and gravies. There's green beans and all of the fixings. And can you imagine you come out and you go, I'm busted. What? What? Are you crazy? You don't fast on Thanksgiving Day and you don't fast on Father's Day. That's not the time to fast. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God accepts us not by the keeping of the law or the observing of the fast or the feast. And as much as I'm so glad you're at church and as much as I love to see you here and I love to hear that you're praying and that you're reading your Bible, but coming to church and reading your Bible and even praying We're never meant to serve as a substitute for a real relationship with God. But I think you know something. That people are hopelessly addicted to religion. And I think the reason is because they want to set the terms and the circumstances. They want to have measurable, achievable things that they can do. But can you imagine having a relationship where you go, okay, what's the basis of our relationship? Well, we'll see each other four times a week. We'll spend more time on Wednesdays and Sundays. I'll spend one hour a day talking to you in the morning and in the evening. And I'll show affection from time to time. Would you like to have a relationship like that? Okay, what is it that I need to do in order to have a minimum relationship with you? But that's exactly what we do with God. And so Jesus will give an illustration using wedding and a wine. In verse 19, he says, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. One of the cool things about being a pastor is I get to do a lot of weddings. Now, weddings and funerals have one thing in common. Nobody remembers what I say. So the real ingredients of a wedding are the groom and the bride and the witnesses. A real wedding consists of real love and trust and commitment. 
It's not enough to have mutual attraction, mutual interest, and mutual affection. Because the central question in every wedding still is, will you have her? Will you have him? I heard the story of a fabulously wealthy Texas millionaire. And he was nervous about his upcoming wedding. And he hated the idea of this prolonged wedding. And so he said, preacher... I want it short and sweet. As a matter of fact, if you can make this wedding five words, I'll give you $500. So the preacher thought about it. And he said to the woman, take him. Take her. Took. (laughs) It's the shortest wedding on record. In the Jewish culture and society, it wasn't like that. As a matter of fact, in the, in the, in the Jewish culture and, and society, a wedding feast lasted an entire week. It became a type and a picture both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the relationship of God to his people. This is why Jesus uses this illustration to communicate the sense of joy. God used it to to communicate his relationship with his covenant people of love and intimacy and commitment. And there are two essential ingredients to happily married. It is something to do and someone to love. The Christian life was meant to be a wedding feast, not a funeral dirge, or the way we would say it. It is supposed to not be a funeral, and it is supposed to be a fiesta. It's a party. And the guests, friends, special chosen people were known as the guests of the bridegroom. Literally, they're called the children of the bride's chamber. And the bride and groom for a whole week were treated like a king and a queen. I guess in our culture and society, for those of you who have been to prom, it's more like a prom king and a prom queen. In other words, where you get this little throne and everybody goes, ooh, and ah. As a matter of fact... For the hardworking Jewish people, this week of celebration was actually, for most people, the happiest moment in their life. As a matter of fact, according to the Mishnah, rabbis would issue certificates. And let me tell you what the certificate said. All in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. Can you imagine the pastor gives you a ticket and says, look, here's what I need you to do. I need you to have fun. I need you to have joy. You know, it amazes me that some people who come to our church express less joy than at a Bronco game or at a Rockies game. You go to the Rockies game and they go, boom, boom, go team. You come here, it's like, oh, when is this going to be? And I understand. I Trust me when I say I understand. I want you to be as normal as possible when visitors come so that people will go, man, that church is people. Yeah, I'm all about being normal. Yeah, you guys laugh and you go, okay, I take that back. 
But this was the time of joy. And so in verse 20, he talks about the time of sorrow. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, this is the first hint of a future that Jesus will experience. Because he's the bridegroom. Jesus will be taken away from his disciples. He will be arrested. He will be incarcerated. He will be executed. He will rise from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. And we will join Jesus in heaven. No wonder Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going to go. But if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Heaven is not the place to fast. Heaven is the place to feast. And in the New Testament, we read of a future marriage supper of the Lamb where there will be perpetual music and perpetual feasting and everlasting joy. Why? Because the groom is there and the groom is reunited with the bride. And I'm reasonably certain that they're not going to play the Margarina song. They're going to it's going to be other kinds of song, but it will be like wedding songs that you're familiar with. C.S. Lewis once remarked, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. And I think that he's right. Because when you eat that food or taste that wine or see that beautiful expression and a sense of happiness and joy begins to well up inside of you, it becomes a pale and imperfect picture of what it means to have a real relationship and friendship with God, knowing what the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Father is all about. Thomas Traherne wrote, Till you can sing and rejoice and delight in God as misers do in gold. And kings and scepters, you'll never enjoy the world. What a remarkable statement. Leslie Weatherhood said, the opposite of joy isn't sorrow. It's unbelief. And I think that he's right. We refuse to believe what the Bible has to say about what it means to have a relationship and fellowship with God. Octavius Winslow was a Baptist preacher who also founded Kensington Chapel. He lived in the 19th century. Think way before telephones. Think before TV. Think before radio when people used to take special time and specific time to prepare their messages. He wrote, quote, the religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open up our prison house, to cancel our debt in a word, to give us oil for joy, for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness is not this joy. Where can we find a joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying in the gospel of Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. The child of God is from necessity, a joyful man. His sins are forgiven. 
His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessing. His conflicts are victories. His death is immortality. His future is heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, endless blessedness. With such a God, with such a Savior, with such a hope, ought he not to be a joyful man? Amen. And wine becomes a picture of joy. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. You have to understand something, that fabrics and cloth were very different in the first century than modern fabrics. New cloth was typically hand-spun and hand-woven. And whenever it would get wet, it would shrink. When I was a kid growing up, we would go to J.C. Penney's and we would buy brand new Levi's. 501, 100% cotton. What happens when you toss those Levi's into the washer? They shrink. But imagine you love your Levi's, you love them, you wear them, not just for five years or ten years, but twenty years. And all of a sudden holes start to fill your Levi's. So you go to JCPenney and you buy a brand new pair of Levi's and you cut them out and you make patches for your old treasured jeans. And you put the new patch on the treasured old Levi's. What happens when you throw them in the wash? Not only have you ruined a brand new pair of jeans, but you've also ruined your deeply beloved jeans. That's the point that he's making. Man-made traditions were never meant to serve as substitutes for real relationship and real joy. So in this particular instance, he's using this parable to represent not historical biblical Judaism Specifically, but rather historical biblical Judaism that also took on the remnants of man-made traditions. But there is a certain element of the dispensation in it. Was the sacrifice of Jesus and is the resurrection of Jesus, is it simply to serve as a temporary patch or an additional patch? Christianity, was it meant to supplement Judaism? The answer is no. Christianity was never meant to patch up Judaism. And the relationship with Jesus was never supposed to patch up the failed relationship of some sort of failed religion. And so in verse 22, Jesus says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts, the new wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. He speaks of a new wardrobe and he speaks of a new wine. Remember, in the first century, they would use goat skins or sheepskin in order to make bottles. By the time Jesus was saying these words, the Romans had invented glass. So there was such a thing as bottles. However, the Jewish people in the first century would take a goat skin. They would sew the edges together to form a watertight bag. New wine, as it aged or fermented, would stretch the wine skin. The elastic skin would continue to expand as long as the wine did. 
There are two kinds of people in this room. Old people and not so old people. Do you know what the dividing line is? It's the presence or absence of collagen in your face. Young people, their skin stretches because it's filled with collagen. Old people, their skin doesn't stretch. It becomes old, rigid, leathery, like me. That's how you know you're old, by the way. It's when you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your parents. You've crossed the line. And so in the ancient times, they would take new wine and put it into the new wine skin so that it would demonstrate the elasticity. The old rigid skin would burst or explode. Now, let me just say the obvious wine skins were made to hold wine. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? And Christians were made to be containers of joy. That's why you were conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's why you were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's why you were reconciled to the Father. So that you could experience fullness and freshness and friendship in Christ. And so the old wineskins represent the forms and rituals of Judaism and, and the old covenant. New wine needed a new covenant. It wasn't helpful for John's disciples or even the religious leaders to put the Lord's disciples under the bondage of sorrowful fasting. The joy of Jesus and the effervescence of a life filled with the Holy Spirit needed to have some sort of expression. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, had become rigid like the old wineskins. They couldn't accept faith in Jesus, which cannot be contained or limited by man-made rules, man-made traditions, or man-made ideas. And you need to understand something, that even at this point, the religious leaders are beginning to understand that Jesus is making messianic claims. They may not believe them, but they understand that there's something remarkable about this man. He's opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He's cleansed the leper. Soon he's going to multiply. He's already turned water into wine. He's going to multiply loaves and fishes. They understand that there's something amazing about this person. And here's the rub. How can this Messiah not command his disciples to fast and intercede for God's prophet, John the Baptist. After all, the prophet meant so much to Messiah's ministry. But at the heart of the fasting question is an underlying question, an unspoken question, but one that is about to come to a head. Is Jesus God's Messiah? Is he the promise that has been spoken of throughout the Old Testament? Now, it's unusual for John's disciples and the Pharisees to be in the in the same room, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of like having the gay and lesbian society in with with on Fox News. It's like well, these two people aren't supposed to come together, but they do come together. 
And why do they come together? Remember, John the Baptist has already pronounced the Pharisees as hypocrites and pronounced judgment on them if they failed to repent. So why would these two people join forces in order to address this issue of Jesus? And it could be because both of them still were hopelessly addicted to religion. And it could be that some of you are addicted to religion. I love to come to church. Why? It makes God happy. Really? I love to read my Bible. Why? Well, because it makes God happy. I love to pray. Why? Because it makes God happy. Really? Is that why you read your Bible? Is that why you go to church? Is that why you pray? What is going on? Do you somehow sense that God is unhappy with you? That you're not religious enough to make God happy? Is your heart beginning to get rigid, refusing to flex and and bend? And it isn't limited to age. I was with one of my granddaughters a couple of days ago when we were walking through some stores and we were in one particular store and my little baby's just a year old and she's walking and toddling and she wants to explore and she wants to find out everything about everything and she stops in front of a six-year-old and she starts staring at him. And the little six-year-old starts to get uncomfortable and he starts to squirm and he starts to rock back and forth and then he says to his dad, this, this kid is staring at me and I said she's only one years old she doesn't know about social propriety she doesn't know what's acceptable and unacceptable she she isn't awkward about discovering and exploring things and then the dad looks at him and says you were way more awkward when you were that kid's age (laughs) you might might be a new Christian and, and You don't realize it yet that you're not supposed to wear a perpetual smile on your face. Your heart isn't supposed to always be filled with joy. You come to church and you see these long faces. Someone said in the first service, you know what donkeys and Christians have in common? They both have a long face. Really? Really? You see, in their zeal... To embrace the law of Moses, the commands of God, and heed the warnings of God. The Pharisees proved to be a preservative like formaldehyde or vinegar. In other words, like formaldehyde, they began to reek with the odor that's so closely associated with death. And like vinegar, the sour substance of their lives substituted historical, biblical Judaism for man-made traditions that gave them the illusion that they were following the commands of God and the demands of the law but Jesus was never a conformer like the Pharisees or even a reformer like John the Baptist but a transformer Kent Hughes has written 
When Jesus fills the wineskins of our lives, the swelling life within stretches us to new limits. The inner pressure expels unneeded things and fills every aspect of life. Those who have not yet had Christ take up residence in their hearts can scarcely imagine how fully they will be filled. How every aspect of their humanity from their intellect to their emotions will be changed. So dynamic is the new life that the old wineskins of previous religious structures will collapse. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think it's safe to say that the religious leaders were curious about Jesus? Yes. Would you even go so far as to say that some of them were impressed with the teaching of this rabbi? I would say that that's the case. There's something about Jesus. There's something about his demeanor. There's something about what he does. There's something about what he says. There's something about him that's important. And I'm going to suggest to you that they would have been happy to incorporate some of his teachings into their own Jewish fundamentalism. They were hoping for some kind of middle ground. Some happy medium, some compromise where they could retain the best of Pharisaic Judaism and the best that Jesus has to offer. But Jesus is going to show the folly of that. Jesus will say, I'm making a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the writer says, When God speaks of a new covenant, it meant He has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date. It will soon disappear. In the illustrations that Jesus gives, He's basically making the statement, You can't mix the old way and the way that Jesus offers. Jesus isn't simply a new way. He is the way. This isn't just simply Old clothes for a new man. This is a new wardrobe for a new man. This isn't just simply old wine. It's new wine for a new man. Jesus doesn't come to destroy but to fulfill. And there are two ways that you can destroy something. You can smash it or you can permit it to fulfill itself. Let me give you an example. Imagine I have an acorn. And I take a hammer... And I smash that acorn to smithereens. What's happened to the acorn? It's gone. It's destroyed. Now imagine I take the same or different acorn and I plant it in the soil. And the seed bursts and it produces a live, beautiful oak tree. Do you know what both have in common? Both were destroyed. When one is destroyed, the seed becomes crushed and useless. But when it becomes planted, the seed will give way to a new identity, a mighty tree. And Jesus will fulfill the old, both in promise, in prophecy, in type, and in the demands of the law. His death will provide the seed that will grow into eternal life for everyone who accepts him by faith. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, I haven't come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know, when I was preparing this message and I was re-going over it, I thought about the old covenant, the law. The old covenant is different from the new covenant. 
One is called the first. One is called the second. The old covenant came by Moses. The second one came by Jesus. Someone might say the law was given by Moses. Yes, but the law came by Christ. What about the law of sin? Well, what about the law of righteousness? What about the law of the flesh? Well, what about the law of the spirit? Well, the first covenant was not a faith, but the second covenant is the law of the spirit and of faith. The first covenant was a yoke of bondage. The second, a law of liberty. The first, the law of death. The other one, the law of life. The first one entangles. The second one makes free. The first one is a shadow. The second one is a reality. The first is fulfilled. The second is now in force. The first is glorious. But the second one is more glorious. The first is powerless to save. The second saves to the uttermost. The first offered many sacrifices. The second only one. The first had a temporary priest. The second has an eternal priest. The first remembers sins. The second forgets sins forever. You have to understand something. The old covenant covered God's glory. The second one revealed God's glory. The first one brought bondage. The second brought liberty. The first couldn't justify. The second does justify. The first brought a curse. The second redeems from the curse. The first cannot give life, but the second does give life. The first is under the law, and the second is under grace, and the first is done away, and the second is never done away with. The first was only for Israel. But the second belongs to everyone. To everyone. Why would anyone want to retain the first when you can proclaim the second? What is your attitude about change? Has the wineskin of your heart grown rigid and hard? How would you describe your fellowship and friendship with Jesus? A funeral? Or una fiesta? I understand that there's times of sorrow. And I understand that there's seasons of sorrow. But the greatest demonstration of what the world looks at is your face. You know, you can't be blamed for the face that you were born with. But make no mistake about it. By the time you get to be my age, way past 50, you're responsible for your face. You have the face that you want. You have the face that you have ingrained. You have the face that you're satisfied with it. It takes 16 muscles to make a smile. It takes 36 muscles to make a frown. You know, the Christian life has always suffered from man's attempt or religion's attempt to mix freedom with legalism. To embrace the law at the expense of grace. And by the way, this fellowship will be conservative or preservative. Or it will be glorious in joy 
One of two things really is happening right at this very moment. You are looking into the future. Or you're looking at the rearview mirror and you are fixated on the past. So there is going to come a time when you need to ask and answer maybe one of the most important questions that you could ever ask. What part are you playing to bring joy and life into your family, into your neighbors, into your church? What role does joy play right now? You've probably been in circumstances where you've looked at someone and you thought, if that's what it means to be a Christian, that's not what I want. I don't want to live in sorrow. I don't want to live in selfishness. I don't want to live in sameness. And so Jesus comes. And Jesus says... I'm here. And the fun begins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and for his love. Lord, we understand and are sympathetic to the reality that sometimes we find seasons of sorrow. But if a season of sorrow becomes a lifetime of sorrow, then we have to seriously question What's going on? Lord, we know that we can experience a profound absence of joy and absence of peace. But Lord, we know that hope restores joy and establishes peace. And so, Heavenly Father, we know that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood And righteousness. Lord. Give us joy. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.